The Murti Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Today, on my panel, we have two of our most brilliant and experienced attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, highly seasoned, experienced attorneys, Adam Rosen, who's a member and an assisting managing attorney, and Chris Drynan, who's a senior attorney. And between, I think, among, between the th- or among the three of us, we probably have close to 100, maybe 75 to 100 years of experience in a U.S. immigration law. So welcome, everyone. Today's topic is visa issues for employees. Uh, the theme, uh, of course, which is of great, this topic is of great interest under the Trump administration. So we will start with the border or CBP, Customs and Border Protection issues, and then move on to visa-related issues at the U.S. consulates uh, and their policies. So what we're noticing currently at the ports of entry, the airports, the land ports, the seaports with CBP, Customs and Border Protection, is that, and which many of you have, may have noticed, is that there continues to be closer scrutiny of individuals who are requesting any form of admission at the ports of entry there continue to be reports of aggressive questioning and behavior by some CBP officers, including increased inspection of electronic devices. And recently, very, very recently, with the resignation, the sudden unexpected resignation of the acting director of the Customs and Border Protection and his replacement with where people are talking about being the current acting director of the ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, This enforcement heavy mentality with close scrutiny is probably only going to continue from bad to worse. So with that, let me start with you. How about Chris? Let me start with you. Since you've done a lot of expedited removals and worked on that case, what are the problems? What are we seeing about regarding expedited removals at ports of entry? Thank you, Shiva. An expedited removal order is basically the most severe thing you can have happen to you at a port of entry. It's essentially, it's a form of a deportation order but unlike some other deportation orders that people can be can be issued, you'll never see a judge for this. This is issued by a CBP officer directly at the port of entry. Um, and essentially the consequences of this, uh, well, main one is that you'll be put on a plane back home uh, as soon as there's a plane available. Your visa will be canceled, the visa in your passport, and you will have a five-year ban on returning to the United States. Now there's a waiver available for that. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit. Um, but the process to get back to the U.S., if this happens to you, can be very, very lengthy. Um, it would be quite common, if not normal, uh, for an employer who's coming here on, on, for example, on H-1B, to lose their, lose their job or lose their project in the interim, just because it takes so long. Um, to come back after this happens to you, after you receive one of these expedited removals, you'd have to get a waiver uh, that you would apply for at the U.S. consulate when you apply to get a new visa stamp. Now, this is a a multi-part process. This is not a simple application. Essentially, the officer at the consulate has to recommend the waiver. Uh, State Department headquarters has to agree with that recommendation. But the final decision on the waiver doesn't come from the Department of State. It comes from CBP again. They have an office that that decides these applications. Uh, Processing times for these used to be about six months. 
does not appear to be taking six months any, anymore. It's, it's normally, in our experience, taking quite a bit longer than that. Okay. And what about these expedited removal orders that we're seeing from CBP? What are the different kinds of situations, Adam, that they happen in? So this is a good question. In the H-1B context, they, they're looking at certain things uh, in, in particular, discrepancies in the addresses between work location and home. So if they, they have a work address, they want to see that you're living nearby. Uh, they're looking at the resumes and the kind of experience that people are putting down there to see if it sounds exaggerated. They may ask questions of an individual about the kind of work that they've done in the past. Uh, and then employers or end clients who don't correctly answer questions about the employees and work assignment. There are certainly uh, many cases where the CBP officer will call an employer or call an end client from the port of entry while the uh, individual is in inspection there being questioned by CBP in order to verify uh, the details um, of this person's experience or the, the work arrangement that this person has. For all foreign nationals in general, uh, contents of a person's luggage, uh, the kind of luggage we're bringing in, electronic devices, uh, that and that show up what um, might be the actual reasons for a person's uh, entry to the United States and they're looking at whether it does or does not match up with what the person is actually saying to the CBP officer when they're going through inspection. So also discrepancies from the visa application that with a stated reason for visiting. They're, they're looking at all of these different things at the initial uh, CBP inspection when a person is coming, gets their turn at the end of the line, presenting their passport visa, other documents that come in, and then secondary inspection where the officer is taking a bit more time to probe it all the information that they have access to. So examples, for example, we see if a person's coming as a student on an F1 visa, but they have a resume and they open the luggage or they open the, the person's luggage and find resume, they're like, well, are you applying right. for a job or are you truly coming to study? Or and they can send you back based on expedited right. removal. Or there might be somebody who's coming in saying they're claiming to visit a friend, but they've got all this luggage with them and the officer is going to say, really, you're not coming here to, to move Settle here? You're not settling down? Or if, you're, if your job a project is supposed to be on an H1, let's say in San Francisco, but you're flying into Baltimore, they're like, okay, unless you can explain and show the onward ticket after two days visiting family, they're like, really, we think you're not working there. We think you're up to something else if you come flying to a different airport. So you have to be very careful mm -hmm. about little things like that, that sometimes people think nobody cares. They are looking at it. They do care. <laughs> they are looking at it very carefully. So what can be done, Chris? Mm -hmm. What can be done if there's an expedited removal order? Well, one thing that's very important is you need to preserve all the documentation that CBP gives you. They're going to give you normally, they're supposed to, a stack of documents um, when this takes place. The most important single document there is going to be a written statement of all the questions they've asked you and all the answers you've given. You want to review this to make sure it's accurate. I've seen plenty of cases where people told me that the statement that, that was produced in writing is not what they said, that this was not an accurate representation of what occurred. So take a, a good look at that. Um, it may sometimes be possible to challenge this order directly with CBP. Um, we've had some success doing this, essentially going to the, the port director where the expedited removal was issued and asking them to change this, this removal order, this deportation order, into what's called a withdrawal of an application for withdrawal of admission. Essentially turning it from a deportation order into a voluntary departure. You're, it's not perfect, your visa is still canceled. Um, you would still have to go to the US consulate and apply for a new visa stamp, but because there would be no deportation in this case, you would not have a five-year bar on re-entering the US. Um, now, it's, this is very hit or miss. 
Uh, it really depends on the port. It really depends on the individual circumstances. Sometimes they're willing to do this, sometimes not. Um, if they say no, there's no, there's no, you can't go into court to challenge this, there's no appeal. This is very much a, a, an informal process, not a formal application. Now, if they're not willing to do this, uh, you're going to have to take some other actions, namely the waiver application at the, at the consulate. Okay. To further continue the discussion of what Chris just said, the withdrawal of admission, it's a really good strategy if your employees are coming on an H1 or L1 or some other status to request the CBP, they're going to send them back to just say, please, I would like to withdraw my request to enter to be admitted to the U.S. Uh, because if they otherwise, if they like we just talked about, ultimately issue the expedited removal, you have the five year bar to re-enter. Now, the CBP officer has to agree to this and often they will if they feel there's no major impediment, major fraud, major problem. You can just say, I'd like to withdraw. Sometimes they actually ask people, do you want a free ticket to go back or do you want to um, pay for your own? And people think, oh, I'll take a free ticket. The free ticket usually means deportation with a five-year bar. So don't take any free tickets because sometimes they're a little bit tricky. Um, as we said, it's much less severe than an expedited removal because of no five-year minimum bar to re-enter the U.S. But the visa is still canceled. Admission can be denied. Uh, admission will be denied and more appropriate um, for most cases where the CBP officer questions eligibility but there is no fraud, misrepresentation or immigrant intent. A person will have to go back to the home country, apply for a new visa and may face tough questioning by the consular officer at the consulate. So you need to be prepared to address whatever the issues that CBP officers stated for refusal of admission because now in this day and age with sharing of information between the different agencies, they have access to most of that information. And the last point I want to make is in some cases where there has been a withdrawal of admission, consular officers could end up making kind of some type of a fraud finding based on the information collected by the CBP and mentioned in the paperwork or in the computer screen in their database and then they will add it and then once it becomes a fraud issue of obviously it's way more complicated mm -hmm. to get waivers of fraud. Um, okay, so that's withdrawal of admission. Adam, if I can have you talk about what are the problems that we're seeing with I-94 cards with the CBP. So if you actually get into the United States as you, ho you hopefully should, um, usually this happens when a worker has a valid visa with an expiration date that differs from the most recent um, I-797 approval notices validity end date. So you have a, you're coming to the United States, CBP issues an I-94 card that you can see online, and the expiration date doesn't match up with your approval notice end date. Now the CBP officer may not look at that approval notice and admit the person only until the visa expiration date. So that may be one place that the I-94 expiration date is coming from. So it's important to review the I-94 card when you come into the U.S. It's not something to be looking at months later. It should be one of the first things that you're doing um, when you come into the U.S., maybe you know, later that day or the next day, to make sure that the end date matches up. For your because, employees. For your employees, because when the end date doesn't match up, you need to ask why. Is there a CBP mistake? Is there not a CBP mistake? Because sometimes there, sometimes there may not be, legally speaking, an error that can be fixed. And sometimes, in fact, there is something that can be done. Um, and if you don't notice it until you're at the time when you're applying for an extension, there may be a pro bigger problem that can't easily be resolved. 
So if it is an actual mistake by CBP that the person should have been issued should have been admitted with an I-94 expiration date to a future date, then those corrections can usually be made at the local CBP office. Sometimes it's enough to call what's called the deferred inspection office at the airport. Sometimes you have to go down in person. Um, and that's if the shortened date is due to an actual mistake by the CBP officer. However, to keep in mind that CBP usually refuses to change the I-94 expiration date if the mistake wasn't found until after the I-94 credit expires. Um, one thing that is a common that is commonly perceived of, perceived of as a mistake, but is not actually a mistake, is if the I-94 expiration date is a date that matches the passport expiration date. Um, and that, in fact, is not a mistake because the law requires that the passport be valid for six months after the uh, end date that you're requesting. So if someone comes into the U.S. with a, let's say, an I-797 that's valid until 20, November 1st, 2021, but their passport expires on November 29th, 2019, and they're entering the U.S., let's say, August 1st, 2019, that person's only getting admitted until November 29th, 2019, and CBP didn't make a mistake. The person will either have to get a new passport and travel abroad with their visa or file an extension before the I-94 expiration date. Correct. Okay. So let's talk briefly about other mm -hmm. issues. Chris, how about secondary inspection related issues? Secondary inspection is, is something that we see fairly frequently these days. And just to, to clarify our terms here, when you first get off, uh, get off the plane, you go into the customs lounge, the first officer, you get in line, the first officer you present your passport to, that's called primary inspection. They'll look at your visa, look at your passport, ask you some questions. Most of the time they'll say, fine, welcome to the United States and send you on your way. But if they have any concerns about the documents you presented, or, or they have concerns about what you've told them, they can refer you to what's called secondary inspection. Basically, they'll direct you to go into another room, normally has some benches there. You'll tell you to sit down until they call your name. Could be hours. Could be, uh, could be hours, could be many hours, depending on, depending on, the, on the port and depending on why they want to talk to you. Um, they can search through all your belongings, they frequently do, go through all your luggage. And they can also go through all your electronic devices, your cell phones, uh, your laptops, your tablets. Um, they, have, they have software that basically allows them to drain all the information from these devices and look at everything on there. And they're, they're allowed to do that. Um, they can look at your social media, your Facebook, Twitter, all of these, all of these types of uh, social media services, your text mails, can a person mails. refuse and say, how dare you, I have privacy concerns? You can refuse, but you're not going to be admitted. That's probably going to lead to an expedited removal order, generally. Um, so they will, they do have the right to look through everything, emails. Um, so you have to be, you have to remember this when you're coming in. Um, it's very easy. I, I have thousands of emails on my cell phone. Um, you know, and it's, it's very easy for CBP to look at an isolated email or an isolated text message and misconstrue something that's, that's actually pretty innocent as to something that looks suspicious somehow. Um, so you're coming in as a, ostensibly you're coming in as a visitor, but you've got a resume or you've got text regarding job offers. I mean, all of this, I mean, there could be a perfectly innocent explanation for all of this, but it's very easy for a CBP officer to latch onto this and, and find there's something, uh, there's something untoward about this and that you're, you're somehow misrepresenting yourself. Okay. And so I guess some of the simple strategies to try to have success in entering the United States safely would be to have your employee arrive during normal business hours so that the CBP can call you 
or your HR person in charge of the company or talk to the end client, etc., to confirm the details of the job, the location, the you know whatever, the hours, the project, the job duties, etc. Also, um, it's important to be aware of any kind of online information regarding both the individual coming in and for you as an employer to share this information with your employees uh, and with other people in the company because an employee claiming to work directly for the end client on LinkedIn may cause the CBP officer to question the employer-employee relationship with you as the H-1B employer or H-1B petitioner. So Adam, what types of issues do we see, especially with lawful permanent residents? And by the way, some of this even applies to US citizens, which shocks people. Yeah, so they can be searched, including electronics. The, the, the big issue that comes up for a permanent resident, particularly if they've been uh, out of the United States for extended periods of time, or you could be even in the situations where they're not out for a solid block of time, but they travel so much the CBP officer is putting them into secondary inspection and raising questions about whether they, they've actually ma still maintaining a permanent residence in the United States. And so what will often happen in those situations, the CBP officer would try to get the permanent resident to admit that they're no longer a permanent resident. And they do this by trying to force the person to sign what's called an I-407 record of abandonment of permanent resident status. And in fact, as much as the CBP officer pushes, the individual is not required to sign it, and it, uh, it may, in some situations, require a certain amount of stamina and stubbornness to say no. In that situation, the CBP officer should stop pushing, and what will happen is they'll let the person into the United States in order to appear in front of an immigration judge, and essentially they'll have a hearing scheduled in front of an immigration judge where they will have to argue that they are maintaining and have not abandoned their permanent residence in the United States. Now, this is something that's been around for many years, but this um, the number of cases about this um, increased with the first travel ban um, executive order um, that um, the Trump administration issued, all the issues that were happening at the port of entry. So this became, got a bit more prominence, but it is something that can happen to anybody coming from anywhere who is a permanent resident of the United States and, and catches the eye of uh, CBP. It's pretty scary stuff, and as we said, even as a U.S. citizen, they can search your electronics at the port of entry, and m many don't realize mm -hmm. that they can catch and look at your cell phone, your laptop, and your tablets, and all of mm -hmm. that stuff, which people think is just that they're like, that's not America, that's not the Constitution, that's not, yeah, it is actually, it if is. you try to mm -hmm. enter the border, and even up to, up to 100 miles from the border, mm -hmm. as the rules allow. So next, let's talk about the issues at U.S. consulates. Um, obviously, with everything going on with the Buy American, Hire American executive order back from April of 2017, um, the, the entire media attention, all of the talk that's going on has only increased the scrutiny by consular officers for visa applicants. So now instead of just kind of doing some type of preliminary review, consular officers will ask a lot more questions from especially from H-1B consulting companies and employees to verify the existence of the work the end client work and anything else that they wish to ask you regarding the H-1B petition. Also a new hot topic that we're seeing now of course is in family-based cases and in employment-based cases if the person is for example working on a part-time H-1B or full-time that they think is not very high salary they're asking questions regarding public charge whether you will become a financial liability to the United States because 
your family cannot afford to live or you have health insurance or if somebody gets ill, you know, whether you will end up using some type of public benefit programs uh, that will impact all the rest of us as taxpayers in America. So that's one of the first things we're seeing. What's this whole new thing, Chris, about extreme vetting? We've been hearing that every single visa applicant has mm -hmm. to fill out a new form called DS-5535. What's all this about? Well, the, the, Donald Trump, even before he was sworn in office, has been talking about this extreme vetting of people coming to the U.S. Um, and since he took office and since his administration was, was sworn in, um, the administration has increased the scrutiny of visa applicants for security-related security issues. In other words, they, how they, whether they could somehow be a threat to the United States, and also for, for other, other potential inadmissibilities, even if they're unrelated to security. Um, the consulates use a form now called a DS-5535, uh, which asks for 15 years of information concerning your travel, um, travel to any other countries, and also information about your family, and about your very detailed information about your family, about your employment details. Um, and it will also collect information regarding all your social media accounts. So Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, they'll, they'll ask you for all this information. They have, you have to provide all this to them, along with your previous email addresses and your phone numbers for the prior five years. So this is very, very intrusive information that they're asking for. Um, but this is, this is the norm these days. It's truly crazy. And what about this whole thing, uh, Adam? Uh, about the Department of State issuing a series of cables to consular officers, including implementing this extreme vetting since March of 2017? So the State Department issued these cables, which are essentially like memos and instructions to the consular officers to carry out extreme vetting, giving them certain pointers, certain areas that they need to focus on. Um, first and foremost, which is that every and any visa decision that they're making is an issue of national security, which is kind of consistent with everything you hear from Donald Trump even to this very day. So they would order posts to, um, including the staff that are there for consular matters, law enforcement, intelligence officials, to identify people that may warrant, um, that may need to have increased scrutiny. Um, the, there's something called security advisory opinions that have been around for forever, but historically, there are certain areas or certain kinds of work or industries that if somebody was applying for a visa to work in that, um, or may have had certain patterns of behavior in the past, they would specifically focus on requiring a security advisory opinion or SAO before issuing the visa. But these cables have increased the use of these SAOs as a requirement for issuing a visa. So you've also got more 221G refusals for this administrative processing and they limit interviews to no more than 120 per day per officer in order to allow for closer scrutiny of applications, which unfortunately in many posts like India and elsewhere has resulted in the increased delays in getting a visa issued. Okay, and of course, as all of you are probably already aware, the backlog seem to have increased for visa, uh, for interview appointments for your H&L employees. Now the average wait is two to three months. It used to be a few weeks, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. Mm -hmm. Now it's pretty much doubling. Other delays that we're seeing, of course, which we've referred and alluded to, is the Section 221G for administrative processing, requesting for additional information or documentation. Uh, so let's go a little, delve a little more into detail on that issue regarding administrative processing, Adam. 
So it's a catch-all category. If they have administrative processing, there's no way to know for certain exactly what's going on. It does include security clearances, like as I said before, this SAO, this advisory opinion, um, it, that they can use in their discretion to request. The consulates cannot and they refuse to expedite uh, cases or clearances that they're requesting. Um, our understanding is that these cases can take six to eight months or even longer. So um, administrative processing involves waiting. Okay. And uh, Chris, what about the, the, uh, the additional issues on administrative processing? Well, typically the consulate will only inform the visa applicant uh, that the case requires this additional administrative processing. They won't normally tell you what it is or what they're looking at uh, as a rule, and they won't, really provi they won't provide a time frame as to how long it will take. Um, the State Department website currently reports that administrative processing takes 180 days. Um, some some con individual consulates will say it's a few weeks, um, but there's no required end date here. There's no there's no they're not required to make a decision in any particular period of time. What about filing those down writs of mandamus to demand that the government give me an answer? And that's something that's something that's happening more frequently now. Uh, people are actually getting tired of waiting if we're talking really extreme delays and going into going into federal court and actually filing a lawsuit against the government to try to compel it. And by a the decision. way, that seems to be like the easiest and best strategy. Even though I know many consulting companies and employers in general tend to have some hesitation with the idea of suing like the behemoth, like this huge federal government entity. The truth is a lot of, from small companies to mid-sized companies to large companies, they're all saying, if the, my, if the law is being broken by the government through, without going through the Administrative Procedures Act mm -hmm. and following the own, their own laws and regulations and ignoring the statute, then we have no choice. And very, very often actually by suing, your company and your employees will get the visa or the consulate will approve it or issue it in time or whatever. Chris. Frequently, a lot of times, the government doesn't want to fight these suits. They don't want to contest they'll it. They'll settle it. They'll settle it. They sometimes Outside settle court. it very quickly. Outside court, because mm -hmm. they don't want a decision in which right. thousands of other people can take advantage and quote that decision. Mm -hmm. Some of the other issues that we're also seeing, uh, like other reasons for administrative processing, usually involve that the consular officer needs more time to make a decision maybe regarding a possible ineligibility in for a particular visa because of education work experience, maybe fraud, maybe some other waivers that are needed, additional documentation relating to eligibility like the end client letters or project description, etc. Also to refer the case to the anti-fraud office, AFO or AFU, the anti-fraud office of the at the US consulate for further investigation if they think that the prior work experience of a person was either incorrect or they've never heard of a particular company and they go there and there's like an empty plot of a lot with nothing there or that company is owned by a relative that only does makes beauty products and the person claims that they did something completely different so be careful they are in they have lots of yours and my tax money and they have a lot of time to investigate a lot of things so they will prepare a revocation memo for um, a consular return of the petition to request USCIS to withdraw, to revoke mm -hmm. it, and basically cancel the, the ability of your employee to come back and work with you or for your end client. Adam, what about, oh, okay, sorry, go ahead. And frankly, something sometimes, the, just the fact of these delays essentially makes it moot sometimes. 
Correct. If you have a project here. That's and, for and three months or six months, and you take six months to give the visa. And it's over. The, the project is gone. The mm-hmm. company has gone somewhere else. You've lost your money as the as the H-1B mid-vendor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're basically, that's the whole goal. Right. Is buy American, hire American, hire more Americans, even if there are none around, we don't care. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a weird, backward, convoluted way of thinking. Right, and so if you get that one of these, if you get one of these two twenty one Gs, and so the question that comes up is, what are the con- what does the consulate want from me? If it just says administrative processing, they just want you to wait. But if they actually want something, then the two twenty one G form will normally list what documents they want, or if there's a question that they want answered. And in those situations, it's important to provide them specifically what they're asking for. If there's a question to answer, then make the answer accessible and understandable to a layperson. The consular officer is not necessarily going to understand the intricacies or technicalities of your specific field, whether it's information, an information technology position or something else. And so they essentially, and typically when they're asking for a document, there is a concrete question they want answered, whether it's in a, in a, in a uh, green card sponsored by, uh, for a relative, um, a relationship or for an H-1B worker to see that the work actually exists that the end client project is there. Right. And this is, again, the, the more the complex the field, as Adam alluded to, if it's cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, etc., they don't understand almost any of it. And so they just think that their job is to just harass and ask a lot more questions under security, the guise of security, but really it's about how to delay or deny the case in many cases, unfortunately, even though that's technically not mm-hmm. supposed to be the reason. Uh, but I guess that's what the Buy American, Hire American says. What about consulting companies, Chris? Uh, people who, who work in a, a consulting situation, in other words, an EBC, employer, vendor, client model, uh, get, a, get a lot of attention at the consulates, unfortunately. Um, many people who are applying for an H-1B visa stamp who are working in an end client, one of these situations, uh, will receive a, uh, will be put into administrative processing. Um, for verification of their of their assignment with the end client, um, essentially, someone from the State Department or the consulate will contact the end client and see if if they're actually expecting this person to show up at their work site and work there. Um, now, hopefully, that all works out and that's confirmed. But what happens sometimes is they'll they'll call and talk to someone who works in HR and they don't know who this person is because they're not an employee of the company. They're they're a consultant. So sometimes you'll get uh, you'll get erroneous erroneous denials from the from the end client saying they're not expecting this person when they actually are, and all sorts of all sorts of issues like that. And these verifications are not fast. Uh, even if it, everything goes as it should, it can take several months. Um, and even after the end client has has responded, um, you can have further further delays beyond that. Um, I mean, we've heard of plenty of, plenty of cases, and I've talked to plenty of people who have said the end client was called. A month ago, and I haven't heard anything on my visa stamp. Um, so consultants who are who are going to to apply for a visa stamp really should be prepared for delays if they're planning to travel and they need to apply for a new visa stamp. Um, you have to really really sort of weigh your options here. Is this is this trip really necessary? Do I really have to do this now? Just because of the the really substantial chance that you're going to get a very long delay. Yeah. Whenever people say to me, I've come traveled mm-hmm. multiple times. I've never had a problem. So is it almost 99% safe? And I say no, not in today's climate. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a risk. Could happen to anyone. It could happen to anyone, anytime. Mm-hmm. And delays with the 221G mm-hmm. are so common that it's becoming really... Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have a short-term project or you're, you have to go for that cousin's wedding or a sibling's wedding, 
be prepared for making it a really long trip mm -hmm. and possibly losing your job, which is very unfortunate because it's I very, to, yeah. There are certainly situations where one has to leave the United Especially States. Especially if it's their own wedding. Right. There's, so there are situations where, given the circumstances, whether it's, let's say, a denial or something happens, that a person has to leave the United States. But there are, unfortunately, many other circumstances where a person does not have to leave, but their personal circumstances they're saying demand that they leave and it's just important in weighing that and making that choice to consider the the fact that they're they may be facing that delay at the consulate sure and because we're always cognizant of time we try to do this between 30 mm -hmm. and 45 minutes for each of these teleconferences uh, we will definitely be on schedule we're about 30 minutes a little past 30 minutes at this time so one simple way or one fabulous way that still exists not mainly because it's in the statute and not mm -hmm. just is the interview waiver program. So if a person had a visa in their passport that has not expired more than 12 months ago, you can actually send it in by mail through to the consulate via their career service. In certain countries, they have certain agencies doing it for the consulate. And even though the tr Trump's executive order requires visa interview for every single applicant, but actually the interview waiver program is in the statute and not just a icky itty bitty simple executive order from the president, but in the real law passed by the real Congress, not the fake news or the fake Congress. And it's continuing for at least those applicants who renew, as I said earlier, within 12 months of the period prior visa expiration date. And different countries and consulates can have different criteria, partially because they follow dates. It's like reciprocity, sort of, mm -hmm. where they see if what do what does that country do for American citizens. They do similar kind of give you a hard time uh, for that country's uh, citizens. And for India, we've seen that with the H and L, uh, they can qualify for the interview waiver program, but not if it is a blanket L one approval. But the L twos are able to enjoy the benefit uh, as long as. There was a that was there was a previously issued visa for the same visa class so HHL two L two etc. Prior visa is in the same class is either not expired, unexpired, or expired less than twelve months ago. And prior visa was issued in that country in, in India, and there were no visa refusals for any visa types visa types since that last the original or the last visa issuance. What kind of documents are required to be submitted for something like this, Chris? Well, if you want to take, if you want to avail yourself of this process, you have to make sure that you submit the proper supporting documentation for your visa type. Uh, for example, if you're applying for an H-1B visa stamp, uh, you should submit pay stubs from your employer, uh, bank statements covering the last 12 months, uh, client and vendor letters if those are applicable to your situation, uh, contact information for your managers, as well as your, your most recent W-2s uh, and 1040s, your, your U.S. tax returns, as well as a resume or a CD. Um, you have to submit these, these initial documents to have, a, to, to have a chance for this to work. Now, not guaranteed. Um, certain, uh, you can use this process, but they always, have the, they always have the discretion to call you in for an interview. Um, the consulate will randomly select uh, a percentage of people to interview essentially as quality control. Um, or they can also request, um, the office can also request any waiver applicant to attend an interview. Okay, and so obviously we've talked, we've kind of alluded to it, um, but the most important thing I tell people, you're the, visa, the actual visa interview with the consular officer generally will take anywhere from one minute, two minutes, three minutes, between two to three minutes. They focus on 
how the person looks, talks, responds to the question. So they will focus on the response. They don't look at the documents. People say, I gave, I spent three months, six months preparing the documents. The consular officer didn't read it. That's right, they don't have time in one minute or two minutes. They have to interview sometimes 50 to 150 people per day. Even for you to just say hello to 50 people per day stuff, let alone mm -hmm. do in-depth visa interviews. And also because the officers conduct thousands of these interviews, they very quickly, almost immediately, they will have a sense of whether a particular person or the particular case is typical or a little more complicated. So what kind? What else can they do, Adam, to prepare? So you should be able to talk about the things that are relevant to your case. So if you're, let's say, if you have an H-1B employee that's going to the consulate, they should be able to talk about the, the company they're working for, their employer, the job that they're, that is their H-1B job, their salary, they should know about the benefits. If they're working at an incline, they should be able to talk about the incline, who the incline is, what they're doing at the incline, where the incline is located. It's important to have the, not, that knowledge and be able to communicate it to the consular officer with confidence. Hesitation, doubt is going to make the consular officer suspicious of the, of the individual. The consular officer is looking, is looking for details, they're not looking for fluff, and so that, that clarity and, and being concise in how things are being explained is also important. If the officer be, able, be ready to answer questions about your education and experience, depending on the consular officer, you know, they may ask questions about that, they may not, because some of this information is already being provided in the DS-160 visa application form. Uh, one thing that consular officers are, are uh, still asking about for H-1B workers that are at uh, third-party locations, they're asking about changes, whether the, the particular visa applicant has changed their office, moved the location, where the end client is located, where the employer is located. After Simeo's solutions decision was issued, while there's, there are many companies and, and are that are filing amendments, there still remains to this day many companies that are not filing the amended petition when there is a move of the individual employee before that employee moves. And so the consular officers are looking to see whether there is compliance with that or not. And so if the details don't match up to the visa application, the documents that are being provided, the h petition, the information they have from USCIS that they can see, it, ends up, it can end up with an actual denial of the visa application or a 221G, whether it's to ask for more documents or for the quote-unquote administrative processing that can go on forever. Okay. Uh, what last main issue that we're going to touch upon, Chris, how about with the blanket L1s? Blanket L1s are, are a, a vehicle that a lot of people who work for larger multinational corporations use to come to the U.S. It's a, it's an, it's a form of intra-company transfer visa, um, but unlike a normal L1 where there's an application with immigration here in the U.S., um, if you have a company that has what's called a blanket L1 approval, then the, each individual employee will go directly to the consulate with a package of documentation, and they'll, they'll apply directly at the consulate for their visa. Nothing's filed here on their behalf. Now, the and this, of course, saves a lot of time. It's very convenient. The problem is a consular officer cannot give you an L1 through a blanket case like this unless it's, it's what's called, unless it's clearly approvable. Um, essentially, that's, that's a, a high standard. It's a very high standard. Essentially, it means if there's any doubt about whether this person is eligible for the L1, they will they will refuse the visa and tell you you have to have to apply an in for an individual petition uh, with immigration in the U.S. And there's a much higher rate of denials of blankets in India. Uh, the blanket petition denial rate in India is very high. They're they're certainly denied more often than they're approved, and that's that's very frustrating to everyone because it really removes the advantage in the company of having the the blanket L1 in the first place. 
Um, now, to have your best chance in getting one of these approved, you have to be able to clearly and confidently explain what your assignment is going to be in the U.S., uh, what's your history with the company, and if you're coming as a specialized knowledge employee, you really have to be able to explain what's your specialized knowledge. And remember, you might have three minutes to do this. So if you're, if you're stumbling and you seem unclear, there, there is no way you're going to be issued the visa. Absolutely. So as you can see from our detailed discussion today, the, the issues dealing with both U.S. consular posts around the world and the CBP Customs and Border Protection at airports and land ports and seaports at the ports of entry, they remain extremely challenging for you and for your employees. It's very important to have attention to detail, accuracy, the, how they talk, how they look, how they communicate, how they, you know, everything. Their documents need to be in order. And now they're even looking at social media platforms mm -hmm. and other ancillary documents prepared by you as employers and by the individuals. So uh, we certainly could continue the discussion in greater detail, but you can see we've touched the tip of the iceberg. It's very complicated. It's very disconcerting. It's very scary. Uh, but if your employees are stuck, you're stuck, you need help, you certainly can contact the Murthy Law Firm because we have an entire team that has done a lot of work with Customs and Border Protection, contacting consulates, co contacting CBP offices around the country when your employees are sent back or, or uh, questioned or harassed at the airport and ports of entry, or if they're sent back to, to the U.S. consulate and they have to apply based on a, and then get a 221G, we can certainly contact uh, the consulates. We also have an entire team in India called MurthyIndia.com uh, where you can contact them to help with visa issues prior to even them applying at the consulate to try to increase the chances because the entire team of staff in India, which is based with the headquarters in Chennai, but they also travel to Hyderabad and Mumbai, can uh, guide and assist your employees to ensure as strong a package as possible for either the H-1B or the L-1 or the B-1, B-2 or the F-1 or the H-4, any, any non-immigrant visa application that they apply for. Uh, so just to be mindful of the time, let me uh, uh, thank you for participating today. On behalf of Adam Rosen, Chris Drynan, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we thank you very much for participating and investing your time in understanding issues for your employees at Consular Post and with CBP. And we look forward to wishing you a wonderful summer and taking good care of you and all of your issues and problems relating to U.S. immigration law. Thank you and have a great day. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.